Hi, I'm Bill Wiley. I'm Stephen Dell. And I'm Rob Weinstock. And we're the co-chief medical editors of Cataract and Refractive Surgery Today. Interest in elective medicine is skyrocketing as consumers continue to react to the inconveniences of the current pandemic. Focus on the eyes rather than the whole face. A byproduct of mask use in public is one driving force, as is dry eyes from staring at a computer and logging onto myriad virtual conference calls. Now is an opportune time to take a closer look at elective medicine. And today we are joined by three individuals who share advice and discuss tips for boosting your ROI for refractive surgery, dry eye disease, and aesthetic procedures. I'm Laura Straub, Editor-in-Chief of CRST, and you're listening to CRST, the podcast. Ever ask yourself if you're charging enough for LASIK? According to our first guest, there's a good chance you're not. Sharif Madavi, president of SM2 Strategic, joins us now to give you six reasons why he feels increasing your fees is a smart idea. Ophthalmology is truly blessed, having both the most commonly performed surgical procedure in cataract surgery and the most commonly performed elective surgical procedure, laser vision correction or LVC. I have reported on trends in elective procedures in CRST, starting with the publication's debut issue. Over the years, several of my articles have explored the relationship between price, demand, and value in refractive surgery. My main message at that time was that surgeons were undervaluing their services relative to the benefits the procedure offered. To put it bluntly, I advised them to stop discounting because it did not increase demand and was affecting perceived value by the public negatively. Consumer research also indicated that most individuals didn't want cheap surgery. When LVC prices were lowered between 2000 and 2002, demand dropped, the category gave up $1.7 billion in revenue, and refractive surgeons lost an average of $335,000 in net income. Since that time, prices have stabilized while demand has fluctuated. LVC surgical volume is still far below its peak. Today, a quarter of a century after the first FDA approvals for LVC, there's another message that needs to be delivered. It's time to raise your fees. The initial approvals of the Visex, Summit, and Bausch & Loam eczema lasers came after a decade's worth of research and clinical trials. The evolution of LVC from PRK to LASIK created an immediacy of result that resonated with consumers. The introduction of femtosecond lasers for flap creation in the early 2000s improved the safety and public perception of LASIK. LVC outcomes today are typically far superior to what could be achieved when I underwent PRK in Vancouver, Canada in 1995. Having led the marketing team at Visex during the company's U.S. launch in the mid to late 1990s, I was able to observe how surgeons and practices established their fees. The need to recover high fixed costs, the laser and its maintenance, and variable costs, procedural fees, marketing, and staff, led many practices to price LASIK at approximately $2,000 per eye. Ongoing surveys of ophthalmic surgeons by market scope around that time estimated that the average fee for LASIK ranged from $19 to $2,100 per eye. In 2000, according to market scope, the average fee dropped to $1,750 per eye, and it continued to decline to about $1,600 per eye in 2002. Unlike reimbursed healthcare, demand for refractive surgery is driven entirely by the market. 
As a result, manufacturers and surgeons have an incentive to improve technology and outcomes in order to expand the pool of LVC candidates and overall market demand. Numerous additional indications for LVC have been granted in the United States. Demand, however, has not followed. The number of annual procedures is well below the peak of 1.4 million eyes treated between 2000 and 2007. The recent increase in demand fueled by the pandemic is a promising trend. Consumers don't want to be wearing glasses with their masks. Here are six reasons why surgeons are not charging enough for LVC and should consider increasing their fees. Reason one, tenure and reputation. LASIK has stood the test of time. It has earned a reputation for quality outcomes and 98% customer satisfaction, far surpassing what has been achieved with contact lenses. Most consumers know someone who has undergone the procedure. More than 10 million people have undergone LVC in the United States. Worldwide, that number is likely three to four times higher. Fear remains the key barrier for eligible patients. I, however, expect the popularity of LASIK and PRK to hold steady for the foreseeable future. SMILE also has the potential to expand the entire LVC category. The somewhat less invasive nature of this procedure will help more consumers become interested in LVC. Lastly, the expected FDA approval of the Evo Vision ICL will bolster the eligible pool of candidates who can benefit from surgical vision correction. Advocacy groups are essential to category development and growth. We now have both the Refractive Surgery Council and the Refractive Surgery Alliance helping to better align the messaging about LVC to consumers from the professional community. Both groups are careful not to position refractive technologies against one another. Rather, these organizations work to build public acceptance of refractive procedures as an alternative to spectacles and contact lenses. Back when LASIK could be deemed new or experimental, it commanded a price point of $2,000 per eye. The fee charged today should be commensurate to the procedure's proven track record and long-lasting result. Reason two, true costs. Many practices calculate the cost of offering LASIK improperly with a bottom-up approach. This approach combines a list of individual line items, for example, marketing, procedure royalty fees, consumables, maintenance, labor, facility allocation, capital equipment depreciation, to generate a per-case cost. In multi-specialty practices that offer a wide range of ophthalmic services, it can be challenging and somewhat subjective to allocate shared resources properly. Depending on the age of the equipment, many practices calculate their cost to be around $1,000 per eye. Unlike a bottom-up approach, which tends to underestimate true costs, a top-down analysis is more accurate. This approach takes your annual costs and divides them by the total number of cases performed that year. It should include all direct expenses and an allocation for the facility and staff. In surveys of refractive practices we work with, the true cost ranges from $1,600 to $1,900 per eye. Part of this is attributed to external marketing budgets and upgraded facilities to attract self-pay consumers. Nonetheless, the cost to perform LASIK tends to rise, not fall, over time. If your fees have not increased, the result is eroding margins. As a rule of thumb, if cost represents 75% or more of your fee, it's time to raise your price. Reason three, margin analysis. One challenge with fee setting is deciding how to value services above the cost to perform them. In business terms, 
This entails setting a reasonable profit margin that ensures the fee is within financial reach for patients. One way to determine the right margin for your practice is to compare the good or services to alternative offerings. For refractive surgery, this means comparing your profit margin for LASIK against the profit margins for spectacles and contact lenses. Spectacles and contact lenses typically produce gross profit margins, meaning the revenue less the cost of goods, of about 60% and 50% respectively. Although this doesn't take into account revenue from the eye exam, or a labor cost to dispense a pair of glasses or contacts, these margins are higher than what is typically achieved in refractive surgery, especially considering per case disposables and royalties on top of laser amortization and maintenance. The benefits of refractive surgery as a permanent solution that a customer pays for once should be valued more highly than a temporary solution for which a consumer pays repeatedly. The situation is akin to buying versus renting vision. If the profit margins of refractive surgery were simply on par with those of corrective lenses, a range of $3,000 to $4,000 per eye would be justified. Reason four, the impact of inflation. Inflation is the erosion of the value of a unit of currency over time. For example, perhaps your practice charged $2,200 per eye for LASIK 15 years ago, a price that was above the industry average at that time. If this price has been adjusted adequately to keep up with inflation, your practice is currently charging at least $3,000 per eye. If the prices instead remain the same, inflation has eroded the purchasing power of that revenue. A fee of $2,200 in 2005 is worth only $1,660 today. Inflation has a true impact on profitability. In the United States, people tend to dismiss this impact because we've been in a low inflationary environment for almost an entire generation. The average fee for all forms of laser vision correction has ranged from $2,000 to $2,200 for much of the past 25 years. Preliminary data from a survey conducted by MarketScope in Q1 showed an increase this year to $2,474 per eye. This statistic is encouraging. However, the Q1 average fee is still far below the $3,000 or more that would have to be charged to keep up with the rate of inflation. Reason five, price and demand do not correlate. The period from 2000 to 2005 was one of great volatility in the average fees charged for laser vision correction. The low point occurred in 2002 when average fees fell below $1,600 per eye. Under pressure from discount-focused corporate providers and encouraged by some laser manufacturers, many surgeons lowered their fees to boost consumer demand. It was easy to assume that lowering prices would increase demand, but the opposite occurred. As average fees dropped by 20%, the total number of procedures also dropped by about 20%. Many in the industry attributed the decline in procedural volume to external events, beginning with the bursting of the dot-com bubble and stock market crash in 2000, and extending to the 2001 recession, the tragedy of September 11 in that same year, and Hurricane Katrina in 2005. The market demand for another elective procedure, breast augmentation, tells a different story. During similar time periods, the demand for breast implants tripled as fees increased by approximately 30%. In both breast augmentation and LASIK, the relationship between price and demand demonstrates what economists call inelasticity of demand. 
This term means that unit volume does not increase in response to a reduction in unit price. Conversely, an increase in price may lead to an increase in demand. This is what happened in refractive surgery when the introduction of customized ablations and femtosecond lasers forced doctors to increase their fees to help offset additional costs. Prices increased and demand followed a similar trend. Reason six, price and perception of quality do correlate. In general, consumers have long associated price and quality. Many people believe that the more expensive something is, the higher its quality. This is only perception, of course, but it is one worth considering when establishing fees. It makes intuitive sense to charge more for something that delivers the life-changing value of refractive surgery. The static nature of LASIK fees over the past two decades is also a factor in the perception of quality. During this period, the prices of high-ticket items, such as cars, houses, and other elective offerings have increased. The field of cosmetic dentistry offers a case in point. Some procedures in this specialty cost far more than refractive surgery. A smile makeover can easily run $20,000. These professionals are taught to review and adjust their fees regularly. As a result, cosmetic dentists make sure that their profit margins do not decrease as their costs increase. More importantly, an ongoing adjustment of their fees can maintain public perception of the quality of their services. If LASIK fees don't increase similar to other high-cost purchases, its being relatively cheaper may not be a good thing when consumers are conditioned to believe that more expensive means better quality. In conclusion, LASIK is a medical procedure that has associated benefits and risks. It's also an elective procedure that competes with other retail offerings vying for the consumer dollar. The pricing of retail offerings follows a different set of rules than what doctors are accustomed to in the traditional healthcare model. The life-changing nature of allowing people to see without corrective lenses is a modern-day miracle that can benefit more than half the population. Compare the cost of LVC with other similarly priced uses of discretionary income. You will likely conclude that few, if any, consumer purchases offer a similar benefit. Hopefully, this will allow you to increase your fees with confidence and attract even more patients to refractive surgery many of whom will exclaim it's the best money they've ever spent in terms of return on investment. That hopefully provided you with some motivation to examine your own pricing model. Another way to increase your revenue is to add an elective offering such as dry eye disease management. This is a hot area right now, and more and more surgeons are acknowledging that a healthy ocular surface is key to excellent postoperative outcomes. Cynthia Matosian, founder and medical director of Matosian Eye Associates in Pennsylvania and New Jersey, says that adding dry eye services can not only benefit patients, but it can create a lucrative revenue stream for your practice. Let's learn from her what kind of capital investment is required for these services. A proactive approach to dry eye disease is essential in modern ophthalmology and optometry practices. Fortunately, eye care is experiencing a rapid expansion of ocular surface disease services. A dry eye center cannot be built overnight, at least mine wasn't, 
but the rewards can be well worth effort in terms of the improvements in patients' quality of life and the fiscal well-being of the practice. Dry eye disease is relatively high maintenance, chronic, and progressive. The foundation of a successful dry eye center is a genuine interest in treating patients with this disease. The release of the first presbyopia and astigmatism correcting IOLs prompted my initial interest in OSD. I realized that keratometry readings and topographic maps might not be reliable if the tear film were unstable and that this could lead to inaccurate IOL power calculations. I became inspired to offer OSD services and I recognized that success in this area would require a dedicated team. I believe that a successful dry eye center at most practices requires the efforts of at least one physician and at least one technician. To encourage internal referrals, however, everyone at the practice should understand the OSD services offered. An office manager or lead technician can spearhead training for technicians and the front office staff who answer incoming calls. Depending on the size of the practice, it may be helpful to enlist additional doctors for specific, dedicated services. In terms of equipment, a basic dry eye disease service requires only a slit lamp and fluorescine and lysamine green vital dyes. The result of these tests and answers to a dry eye questionnaire, such as the ocular surface disease index, standard patient evaluation of eye dryness or symptom assessment in dry eye can indicate how many of the practices existing patients have dry eye disease. Building a dry eye center starts from this point. A common perception among providers is that offering dry eye disease services slows patient flow and impedes physician efficiency. I, however, would argue that dry eye disease is like other specialties within ophthalmology. Specific testing is required for dry eye disease management, just a visual field testing, OCT imaging, and gonioscopy are required for glaucoma management, and pupillary dilation, scleral depression, fluorescein angiography, and macular OCT are required for retinal care. Not every test associated with glaucoma or retinal pathology is performed during a single visit. And a similar approach can be taken to dry eye disease management. OSD testing may be performed in a stepwise manner and repeated as appropriate to document the effect of treatment, patient compliance, and disease progression. The workups for dry eye disease and glaucoma have similarities. 
both require a thorough history and a review of systemic medications. To save time in the clinic, patients can be asked to complete the dry eye disease questionnaire of choice at their convenience in advance of their visit. In addition to vital dyes, point of care tests such as Inflamadry and the TierLab Osmolarity System have become indispensable in my practice. I find myography helpful for explaining OSD to patients. For example, I use information from the Lipiscan Dynamic Mybomian Imager or the LipiView 2 Interferometer to educate patients about the structural abnormalities of their meibomian glands. It is often by viewing these black and white images that patients begin to associate dry eye disease with their symptoms. Dry eye disease treatment may be performed in the office and at home, but I find that a combination of the two typically delivers the most effective results. The three types of in-office treatment are heating and evacuation, intense pulse light, or IPL for short, and microblepharoexfoliation. All involve an out-of-pocket expense for patients. My patients have embraced these services and their level of satisfaction with the results is high. In my opinion, Mechanical and manual expression of the meibomian glands after heating of the meibom is far more comfortable for patients than manual expression without prior thermal treatment. Several devices use thermal energy to liquefy impacted meibom and relieve clogged glands such as the Lipiflow Thermal Pulsation System, ILUX, and tear care system. Each device has its benefits, including the following. Patients who are claustrophobic may prefer an open eye treatment such as tear care. Individuals with tight lids or small interpalpebral fissures may benefit from treatment with the ILUX. And those who prefer an automated approach with uniform thermal pulsation may be best served by the Lipiflow. IPL reduces inflammation by treating lid telangiectasia. When the correct wavelength is applied, this procedure helps close off abnormal blood vessels that may be leaking pro-inflammatory mediators. Patients typically begin with four IPL treatments scheduled approximately two weeks apart. Thereafter, one treatment performed every six months is recommended for maintenance. I often perform thermal treatment with gland evacuation and IPL in a sequential manner. Blefex 
can remove scurf and biofilm that may be blocking the meibomian gland orifices. Performing microblepharoexfoliation before thermal pulsation and before IPL can make both of these procedures more effective. Some patients, however, choose to undergo microblepharoexfoliation as a standalone treatment. I find that microblepharoexfoliation appeals particularly to patients who prioritize good lead hygiene. Not only can dry eye disease treatment at home complement in-office procedures, but it may potentiate their effect. Artificial tears alone cannot eliminate ocular surface inflammation. Practitioners who wish to specialize in dry eye disease management must develop a strong understanding of the drugs available. The objective is to tailor treatment to the presentation. This has become easier to achieve thanks to a growing roster of FDA-approved medications. In mid-October, Oyster Point Pharma received FDA approval of Varenicline solution nasal spray 0.3 milligrams for the treatment of the signs and symptoms of dry eye disease. The parasympathetic nervous system controls tear film homeostasis partially via the trigeminal nerve, which is accessible within the nose. This novel nasal spray uses the parasympathetic nervous system to promote natural tear film production to, to reestablish tear film homeostasis. Many non-pharmaceutical dry eye disease treatment options are available for use at home, such as heated moisture masks, lid wipes and sprays, foam cleansers, and mechanical lid brushes. Oral omega supplements can be prescribed to support the health of the meibomian glands and lipid layer. Another prescription treatment option is the ITR100, which is designed to stimulate tear through a vibratory approach when the device is applied externally to the side of the nose. Patients with dry eye disease Visit their eye doctor multiple times per year according to the severity of their disease. These visits are billed to the insurance carrier. Several diagnostic tests recommended for monitoring dry eye disease are also billed to insurance. Because patients often become confused about which over-the-counter products to purchase at their neighborhood pharmacy, Many dry eye centers make these products available for purchase on site. This is a convenience for patients and it helps to ensure proper product selection. Other at-home remedies can also be dispensed at the office, which can increase the practice's overall revenue stream. The in-office procedures mentioned in this article are paid for mostly out-of-pocket by patients. Many patients undergo these treatments annually, semi-annually, or more often depending on disease severity. Offering these services can therefore boost a practice's bottom line. Cultivating and 
Ocular surface disease service can benefit patients and the practice. Thanks, Dr. Matosian. Finally, let's talk about aesthetics in ophthalmology. Surgeons' attitudes toward aesthetics have changed over the years, and today more clinicians are recognizing the potential revenue that neuromodulators, dermal fillers, upper and lower blepharoplasty, and other aesthetics procedures provide a practice with. Amir Marafi, an ophthalmologist in Los Angeles, describes his journey toward finding his niche in aesthetics, emphasizing how interior segment surgery and ocular aesthetics are synergistic patient services. The global aesthetics market is exploding. Projections indicate that revenue will reach $15.9 billion by 2025, up from $9.4 billion in 2020. According to one report, the expected compound annual growth rate, which is 10.9%, in this market is largely attributable to an increase in patient demand for facial aesthetic treatments and non-invasive cosmetic procedures. New products on the market and increases in the disposable income and spending capabilities of potential patients a bright spot in an otherwise dark time of COVID-19 are additional factors. Now is an opportune time for eye care providers to get involved in aesthetics. The current pandemic has brought ocular beauty front and center. People don't want to log on to Zoom calls while wearing their glasses, and they don't want to deal with foggy glasses while wearing masks in public. Many people are seeking to resolve these problems and enhance their quality of life. For cataract and refractive surgeons, Hearing patients express how much they appreciate the gift of sight is a powerful experience. We love sharing in the joy they feel. Helping them achieve the look they want when they can see themselves more clearly is the next step. Aesthetic and anterior segment surgery share several synergies that can both lengthen the patient life cycle and grow the patient base. In my experience, many people who are interested in refractive surgery, lens or laser-based are also interested in elective procedures such as eyelid surgery, dermal fillers, and neuromodulators. These patients are also more likely to refer family members and friends for eye care. Finding our niche in the ocular aesthetics market doesn't have to be hard. Here are four tips for segueing into this field. Tip one, finding someone to shadow. I got into aesthetics as a resident by shadowing one of my attendings. I learned how she educated patients, how she delivered their treatments, and how patients typically responded to the results. When patients returned for follow-up visits, they looked better and exuded more confidence. I started to ask them why they were seeking aesthetic treatments. Their responses were similar. It makes me feel more like I feel inside than what I used to see in the mirror. And when I see this, I feel more energized. I eat better. I go to the gym more. Once I acknowledged the psychological connection between looking good and feeling good, I gained a clear resolve to offer aesthetic services in addition to cataract and refractive surgery. Tip 2. Leverage your experience. Aesthetics is one of the fastest growing industries in healthcare, and the return on investment can be high. As a result, more practices with a patient-centric, concierge-style service model are considering offering aesthetic services. We all completed some aesthetics training during residency through our oculoplastic rotations. We also have experience in injecting neuromodulators for the treatment of blepharospasm, strabismus, and migraines, and using hyaluronic acid. We can build on these experiences by offering dermal fillers and neuromodulators. Tip 3. Take the plunge. I started dabbling in aesthetics as a side gig. 
I practiced on my mother and my sister, and then I began offering private bookings. Seeing my patients' results and reactions was extremely rewarding, and I began to view ocular aesthetics as a potential complement to my practice of anterior segment surgery. After my fellowship, I took a position at a general ophthalmology practice that focused mainly on cataract surgery. A few months later, I pitched the idea of adding ocular aesthetics to our offerings. The owner of the practice agreed without hesitation. The practice currently offers neuromodulators, dermal fillers, and upper and lower lid blepharoplasty. Adding aesthetic services has led to an increase in the volume of refractive surgery procedures we perform. Many of my patients who receive injections of Botox have become LASIK patients and vice versa. I have also observed similarities between people who are interested in cosmetic procedures and those who are interested in premium lenses. The cosmetic cycle allows me to strengthen my connection with these individuals because injectable procedures are generally performed multiple times a year. This setup brings more traffic to our clinic. Introducing aesthetics to our practice has helped me build my career by increasing my exposure to patients and generating word-of-mouth referrals. Tip 4. Get comfortable talking to patients about aesthetic offerings. Most patients appreciate learning that our practice offers these supplementary services, but it can be uncomfortable talking to them about aesthetics. I prefer to follow their lead. For example, if a cataract surgery patient mentions at a post-operative evaluation that they've noticed the effects of aging on their face since undergoing surgery, I mentioned that we offer blepharoplasty, dermal fillers, and neuromodulators. This subtle approach can pique their interest. Connecting with patients, whether it's through cataract surgery, refractive surgery, or even a pre- or post-surgical consultation, can make it easier to find an opening to discuss aesthetic services with them in an organic way. At some practices, it is the surgical or patient coordinators who discuss aesthetic offerings with patients, or pamphlets and signs in the waiting rooms are used to announce that aesthetic services are available. There is nothing wrong with waiting for the patient to broach the subject. I, however, have grown more comfortable talking to patients about aesthetics over time, much like I've grown more comfortable talking to patients about premium IOL options. Patients' interest in ocular beauty is on the rise, and we ophthalmologists have a unique opportunity to become key stakeholders in the field of ocular aesthetics. Why not leverage our experience in the growing market to expand the list of services we can provide to patients? That's it for today's episode. As we roll into December, I wanted to wish everyone a festive and joyous holiday season ahead. Thanks for listening. 